Welcome to episode one of season two of Son of Brank. I am the son of Brank. Who is Brank? So you notice I haven't given any real names here. It doesn't even have my real name as list of host. It just says son of Brank. I'm not going to give you any names quite yet. I just want to describe my family and how it got to be. Brank is the name my father adopted probably around high school. He was a big guy, about six foot. He uh, was stocky with a deep, loud voice with a lot of presence. And he was also very creative and the black sheep from his family. So there were motivations from his family to cause him to be more than just, well, like, say, his brother, you know, who was class president and, you know, straight A's and My dad was rather uh, iconoclast. He had his own way of doing things, and he was brilliant. He was known to be able to know where your buttons were and to push them. My dad was uh, a very strong, powerful voice, and he was in theater. He enjoyed theater and performing, and it was one of the things that truly gave him a lot of great joy. He married... Out of high school, him and my mom met um, cruising down Broadway in Portland, Oregon, back in the late 50s. Maybe, no, actually, maybe 60, 61. I'm a little unsure of the date. I'll have to get back to you on that. It was, it was an interesting time. Uh, it was a lot different for a lot of people who don't understand the context. There were probably only five radio stations on at the time. There were only four or five TV stations at the most when I was growing up. And there was no Internet. There was no—TV wasn't considered like a really great thing. It was a small little picture that, you know, quite frankly, didn't look very good most of the time in most houses because of the rabbit ears. Uh, Reception was analog, and bounce from buildings and mountains could create uh, really horrible pictures and sometimes cause the picture to just dance around because there was nothing for the frame to grab onto. It was too distorted. So a lot of what people did back then is they got in their cars and they cruised. And you can see this in American graffiti. It was kind of like that. And that's how my mom and dad met. They were... Both very intelligent and black sheeps from their family. My mom knew she was intelligent, so she didn't try in school and got along well with the guy who couldn't live up to his older brother. And so he didn't do as well in school. They had me and my brother shortly after getting married. And my dad was going to pursue a, of course, in a, he was going to pursue a career in, uh, entertainment for real so he decided he was going to go with his and he had a three-piece little folk band that was in before 60s rock hey you know folk was you know the beatnik poetry kind of thing progressed to you know folk music uh, acoustic guitars and he played the upright bass and he played it really well and i gotta tell you his pitch is fantastic i have old recordings from before he you know found later success so he goes down with this three-piece folk act and to perform down in the L.A. area where everybody was supposed to go if you wanted to make it. And he lucked into a, a pretty nice band, and they were a big, huge folk act 
with a lot of arguing. It was like 10 or 11 people, and it was just too much ego and too much personalities. And some of the members walked out and created another group, and he was one of them. And that's what led to his success. Those times I remember. I was born in 62, and um, he moved down probably about 64. And end of 65 is when he got with the uh, successful uh, music act down there. But before that, he times were tense. I'm Asperger's, which means that uh, I run a little bit differently than other people. Uh, my speech doesn't run the same tempo, and some of my body language throws people for a loop. But it also means that I can excel in some areas which can seem rather uh, uh, out of, you know, overstand, can seem a little, how do you say, I excelled in ways that seemed either intimidating or he must be faking it. And one of them is being able to remember way back. How far back can you remember into your childhood? I've asked a lot of people this, and I can't believe that nobody can remember as far back as I can. But I have the memories, and they are, you know, they're verified by people who are there. So... My memories, I think, go back to like maybe three and a half. The place that my dad um, was able to get regular enough work so that we moved down there uh, just as, you know, uh, he was making enough money to, you know, be able to have a little bungalow. And we did in Hollywood just off of uh, Western. And he used to live there. And I remember the tensions going on between my mom and dad because fame was starting to hit and there were, you know, very good-looking girls in L.A. And here's this guy saddled with a wife and kids and he brought them down. But, you know, he loved my mom and he loved his kids. My memories of that particular time, uh, I remember the entire layout, which room is where. The mattress was actually on the floor. It wasn't on a bed frame. I remember across from the bungalows, they were they had torn down a building and they had excavated it. I remember it as a hollow ground. I remember after they poured concrete, and I remember the building going up, and I remember them spraying stucco onto the side of it. It looked like a small apartment building. The uh, success ended up moving us to another area, which is uh, Burbank. But before that, my dad used to come by, and he would sometimes show me magic tricks. He also showed me some magic tricks uh, when we were at Burbank, and I remember those more. He would get down on his knees and or sit down cross-legged in front of me, and I'm like a little four-year-old, maybe five. And I uh, watched with interest as he's performing these magic tricks in front of me. He had, The first one he did was uh, a coin, a solid coin that he, you know, I think it was a half dollar. And he sh showed it to me, and I could tell it was solid, and he put it... He did all the tricks as if he were a magician. I mean, he knew how to do this. He knew not only his sleight of hand, but he was very good at banter. In fact, he had the gift of gab like nobody's business. So he would run through his entire magic routines right in front of me, uh, <laughs> even though I was too young to get any of the jokes or understand even half the magic. The... First trick was the coin that he put into a little uh, a box, and then he put a marble on top of it and held it at eye level to me and would pull 
I could see the uh, uh, marble kind of turning around, and then it would drop through. But I hadn't quite figured out what was going on. I saw the marble, and then I saw it drop. He performed it for me again, and he said, watch closely. And I watched, and I saw it perform, and the marble kind of go up and then down a little bit, jiggle a little, and then up again. It was mapping the contours of the coin. I still hadn't figured out the trip, though, because, you know, I was... I had a little mental thing that made me a little different, so I, my learning was a little different. So he had to show it to me, which he did. He pulled the coin out a little slot, and then it went through a hole. It was such an obvious trick, I can't see how anybody else would have enjoyed that or been fooled by it. But to me, it was the start of more magic tricks, and I thought, wow, he showed me. Maybe he'll show me some more. The next tricks he got out were the uh, um, diamonds on rods. No, I'm sorry. That was that was third. The second ones were these big flat paddles. Uh, what he would do is he show me the top and the bottom of the paddle. He just fl- you know flip it up and then flip it down so I could see both sides. I later on knew how the trick worked. I went and got all these tricks as an adult and learned them. So his trick had to do with uh, showing me that there was nothing on the paddles. And then, voila, there was something on the paddles. Uh, He started by putting uh, some rubber band on it with some money. And then he went, bop, bop, bop. And then there was twice the amount of money. Uh, There was one on each side. And then he took the money off. He put those paddles away. He didn't have as much for them. The third trick were the little black rods. Not with paddles, but more like... uh, square sticks, uh, very finely done. In fact, they were very pretty with a shiny black surface. And this trick that worked them were the same ones as the paddles, but I'm not going to deluge you. Most of you who have done this probably know what I'm talking about. These particular black rods had diamonds that would appear and disappear and jump from one rod to another. And in one case, multiple diamonds. And then at some point, he put like another diamond, another diamond, and he told me to blow into his hand and then told me to pull the rod out. And I pulled the rod out, and it was covered in diamonds from one end to the other. After he was done with the tricks, uh, he uh, left. I didn't seem like really thrilled. I don't think I reacted like he wanted. At that particular moment, my reactions were pretty much, I'm taking in everything. I couldn't figure out people's body language, so I pretty much took everybody at their word or what they were doing. And I wasn't quite privy to the fact that their word and what they were doing weren't quite the same yet. Nonetheless, I uh, grew up normally and had kindergarten down there in Los Angeles, uh, getting along with some of the neighborhood kid friends. and Then things got a little more violent, uh, the neighborhood across the street, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, the neighbor lady who had a little boy, and she was, I think, 18. Um, some guys got out of a car and just started wailing on her. And after that, my mom said, I, I can't live here. And my dad was fooling around with other girls. He had already kind of, they had a separation. So she just said, look, divorce me. You go do whatever you want, and I'm moving back to Portland which is what we did. The rest of my life was growing up in Portland all the way until trade school. 
and that went a little badly. The Asperger started to uh, uh, manifest itself uh, towards the end of second grade. I was having difficulty completing tasks. I could understand them, but there were problems with me socially, and that was complicating my ability to learn in school. So third grade, they started me and kept an eye on, and I probably wasn't there a month before the school decided to expel me, and I then had to go to a uh, a special place that was uh it was actually a a trailblazer up to that point the late sixties, which is where i 'm talking about probably sixty eight um schools were just public schools in the old fashioned sense they taught long division long math uh teachers didn 't really get involved with uh, uh student fights you know just you deal with it yourself you know uh, and my district, the neighborhood we moved on into, although my dad bought the house, was going downhill and kind of rapidly. Uh, and my dad was nowhere to be found. He was touring constantly. He'd call once in a while and visit once in a while. But by the time I went to the special school, I didn't see very much of him at all. I always wondered, and, you know, I should mention my dad died in 72, and it was a drug overdose, heroin. So I always wondered if uh, the fact that my dad wasn't around complicated matters for me, or was it the fact that I was complicated causing my dad not to want to visit and be around as much? I mean, you know, <laughs> your son's a retard in retard school. It's kind of something you want to do drugs over if you didn't want to face it and commit yourself. And then my mom had her hands full afterwards. So the school that I went to was... Uh, a first of its kind because there were no um, algorithms. There were no, there, there was nothing before it to go on. There was no guidelines. So they were pretty much trying it out as it worked. And the uh, first counselor that I had was probably the quintessential hippie. Long hair, headband, the, the round linen glasses, uh, the beard, a suede vest with fringe. This guy couldn't have looked more hippie if you'd tried to in a movie or a TV show. And unfortunately, um, I hadn't learned to defend myself because I didn't have a male figure around and nobody was teaching me that stuff. And, you know, I was Asperger, so nothing made sense to me like it did to everybody else. I mean, the physical stuff made sense. The the measurable quantities, math, uh, you know, made sense. Uh, my, what I saw with my eyes, colors, you know, how, you know, define shapes, all that stuff that, you know, anybody else could do and define made sense. Social structures and people's body language, I couldn't read. And that's due in part by a rewiring that makes people on the spectrum. Um, one of the things about the spectrum, which is what Asperger's is usually called uh, on the spectrum going to autism, and there are many forms of autism. If you want a basic simplistic view of what that is, it's the inability to tune out as well as other people. And for me, that was uh, uh, not a distraction so much as it would be for a lot of people. But the fact that I could be aware of everything going on sideways while people are talking to me, I couldn't totally focus, made it um, difficult to read body language because body language, uh, the way people can uh, read 
subconsciously from each other is done in a way that they just feel it's their sense, like I get a feeling. Um, the work is already done on the subconscious level. That work wasn't being done in my body. Those guys were derelict. They were probably out back having a smoke. So I had to physically teach myself to look for specific behaviors that were associated with uh, I was getting set up or I was being lied to or I was about to get you know uh, my ass kicked, which unfortunately was also more common back then because there wasn't a lot of sympathy for problem kids, especially if they had a mental deficiency. So um, um, that was something a lot of um, students could agree on is, hey, let's pick on that guy. He's a dork. Boy, he's so ugly. It just makes me uncomfortable. Let's do it. And so there was never just one person. You know, it was kind of like, hey, we're going to go pick on this guy. So there was a gang that would follow. And you just can't defend yourself against multiple people, especially when they had it on their heads. Whatever they do is fine. You deserved it. <laughs> My dad probably had a difficult time with this because he was a little different on his own right. His own rank or right? Well, he was a little different. I mean, a lot more different than me, but a lot more sure of himself outwardly, even if he was uh, struggling inwardly. And that outwards overconfidence made him very effective entertainer, but it also kind of made him difficult to work with, and not everybody liked him. One of the things about my dad, and I remember this, is uh, uh, he could tell you anything. He could make it up on the spot. He uh, could make it sound believing and convincible. I later on found out he had a nickname called the Reputable Source. He could tell you something so convincing you could believe it. I think I have that ability. I've tried it when I was trying to improvise and have fun, but I have something that my dad didn't have, and that was guilt. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't feel guilty or shame over some of the stuff uh, he would do to people. And although... He wasn't really a bad guy. Um, he had his faults that, you know, made him probably not as good either. I, on the other hand, had an uh, oversized helping of ethics and morals and don't do this and fair play and a single standard, no double standards, to the point where it probably has worked against me more than it's worked for me. <laughs> it, however, has given me the ability to uh, uh, really know my music and to really understand technical things and programming and computers. I got to work with computers and basic start of the internet going the late 70s in my high school had a uh, what was called a microcomputer, which was much bigger and much slower than what's now a mini computer. The uh, technical stuff of all these perimeters, I understood the emotional and the uh, social stuff I didn't, but my dad did. And he could, he could uh, read an audience really well. And he could know exactly how to mesmerize them. They would hang on his every word. And he could make anything. It was kind of like a Garrison Keillor thing, except he was a lot crazier with a lot uh, more imagination. I remember finding once uh, in a pile of discarded and um, practically uh, torn papers, a paper he had written in high school where he had written the entire essay about his favorite bean. Now, I'm talking about a bean in a bowl of beans. And the entire essay, of course, had a nice 
uh, write-up and summary to the answer, which was his favorite bean, being the last one. It had evaded capture for so long, it must have been special. It was the good one. It was the one he was looking for. <laughs> it was a clever story. In fact, it started uh, with a reference to being beaned by a bean with a beanie. Beanie being one of those round hats with a propeller on it. <laughs> Quisp. So, Dad had that ability to uh, um, say creative things and creative uh References to himself. Brank was one of the ones out of high school because of the volume of his voice and the fact that he was a baritone bass, a loud baritone bass. By the way, I'm just as loud and probably deep, if not a little deeper, in my age. So if you ever need a real loud, a real loud bass, well, never mind. Dad also had the ability to memorize things like for example, if you read a line of Shakespeare and named the publication, he could tell you what page number it was on. And a trick he used to do for my mom all the time is he'd say, pick a spot anywhere on my body. And she would just pick the back of his hand because, you know, he'd done this before. But it was clever the way he could do that. She would pick a spot on the back of his hand. And he said, okay, there's going to be a wart there in a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks, there was a wart. Now he said... It's going to go away. And in a couple of weeks, it went away. This is actually a trick I've seen uh, other people talk about. I've never actually seen it performed in front of me, but my mom's a pretty reputable source herself. So she verified that this was something he could actually do. And when you think about it, the human body is actually a nation of living cells. You're not a life. You are billions of little tiny cellular lives. All life is cellular. You're an organization. You're a nation. And every cell, <laughs> it has your instruction book on what every other cell is supposed to be doing as well as itself. And they're all in constant communication with each other through chemistry and uh, nerves with electrochemical impulses. And because of this, they can all sync up really well and talk really well with each other. And it's not unheard of for uh, your body to decide, I am going to do this and to start growing or healing or something else similar that can be done in those timescales. It's literally mind over body. And it can be done. There are things that I think are false that your body leads you to believe are true, like out-of-body experiences, because literally your electrochemical thought processes and the cells necessary to hold the memories and to make this thought happen cannot do it without the cells. Out-of-body means that your cells in your brain can simulate it and can understand it well enough that you can feel like you're out of it. But it's a projection of yourself still anchored in the physical matter of your brain. There is no way around it. If you don't have that brain, there is no thought. You don't exist. I know a lot of people probably will uh, disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I'm just saying, so far, the perimeters I laid out have been confirmed constantly and have not been proven otherwise. Unless you're thinking about thought within a computer system, but it's still a physical entity. So my dad was able to manipulate his body really well like that. And he was able to 
mesmerize people in a way that they could really love him. Or, you know, he could piss them off in a way that they could really hate him. So, my dad was a very complicated person for me to grow up and understand. And I'm very saddened that my two brothers, both younger, one a year and a half younger and one probably about seven, eight years younger, neither of them remember dad. And that's too bad because uh, there's a lot about him that is very likable. People who are very good at things can be charming in their own way. If you accept it without a bias in front, he's probably a very likable person. I can The same can be said about me, actually. I give off bad body languages, so um, um, a lot of people like me go, I don't like that guy. And then they get to know me. It's like, well, actually, he's, he'll, he won't lie to me, and he, will, he isn't malicious, and he isn't calling me names, and he won't steal. I guess he's not that bad. But just the same, you've got to overcome that first instinct. I've learned to do it on stage, but as a person, I don't want to be a performer still. I'd rather be myself, so I'm a lot of times giving off the wrong body language and people like, oh, he's something else. And here's something about my body language. Because I don't have it down, it just doesn't function for me very well. People read different things into it than actually is there. They don't know me well enough, and the body language is confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's conflicting signals. This will say one thing. This other thing will say another, depending on what they pay attention to, which leads me to uh, finding out I'm a Rorschach test. I'm an inkblot. Many times they have to borrow from amongst their own experiences to try and make sense of what it is they think I'm thinking. So in a lot of cases, I can figure out what somebody's like by who they think I am. And it's hilarious. I find that people who are easily gullible think I'm gullible. People who lie a lot think I lie. People who fool around a lot with, you know, uh, are unfaithful in their marriage think I'm capable of it. People who are on drugs think I'm on drugs. People who are really arrogant think that I'm arrogant. And this one hurts because when you're in a school with um, some children one who was severely asperger's he could no he's severely autistic he could not seth he could not even communicate it was very difficult and this good as the staff were they were a little frustrated and working without you know a net they had no idea what to do they were literally trailblazing and this by the way this place uh ended up being a a template for uh all through the 70s and 80s in not just America but in other countries about how to deal with kids. It was called, and I'm giving it this away, but it was called the Edgefield Lodge School for Emotionally Disturbed Children. And one of the greatest things about that place is there was no medicating us except for the two children who there who had um, seizures. One of them was uh, Jerry, Jerry Pitts, I remember his name. He had a football helmet on because he would have seizures and just suddenly drop, and it was the only way to protect his head. So they gave him medication. But the rest of us, we were unmedicated. We were taught to just deal with it, which is the best thing you could do. Medications are a Band-Aid. Unless it's really bad and it could be a detrimental threat to you, or can physically harm you or make you sick or you know, cascade into something worse. You want to try and overcome mental problems without it first. And looking at my dad and his warts, I can see how it is possible. But boy, it is hard. And I know this from experience.
I was there for four years. I went in the beginning of third grade and didn't get out until the very end of six, just before school closed. And I hate to say this, but they kind of just dumped me into school. That was it. <laughs> so things kind of went downhill for me then because the neighborhood was getting bad. And my high school, well, there were people shooting up smack in my high school. And that kind of bugged me because, you know, I saw my dad, you know. The last time I talked to my dad before he died was hmm, four, maybe six months. And he told me a joke. And I remember the joke very well. I'll tell it to you at the end of this. So being told that I'm arrogant is very, very insulting to me because uh, when you're in a school with children who were clinically defined as retarded by the school district, and they define me as that, um, you don't feel like you're better than everybody else. <laughs> in fact, um, it took almost till the end of high school before I realized I was as good as everybody else. I thought I was less than. I was a broken person. This is a very difficult thing to grow up with. But, you know, if if you can get through it, there's a uh, benefit to that. No matter what happens in your life later on, you could be standing in front of a, uh, uh, an audience, uh, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people, and they stand up and give you a applause and ovation. And it doesn't go to your head because you're like, I thank you. I tried hard to get here. And at no point do you feel you're better than anybody else because you remember. You know where you came from. I remember um, years after my dad died. He died while I was in Edgefield. Years after he died, um, uh, there was a murder down the street. Um, some tweakers had killed the entire family and their kids. They tied them up and bashed their heads in with like tools. It was terrible. And not a week went by. And out in the street behind my house, um, some lady decided to call the cops. And the cops came and they immediately assumed I was one of the suspects. So they took me and my friend that I was hanging out with to jail, talking about how we're going to pay. <laughs> my mom had to fight really hard to just keep me from being taken from her and put in a foster program. Now, my mom doesn't drink never drank. She doesn't smoke. She has no criminal record. She doesn't even have traffic tickets. My mom is as honest and as straightforward a person as you could know. And she's a likable, very intelligent person. She's non-confrontational. But back then, she was under a lot of weight. She was in over her head, and she couldn't deal with a lot of it. So she, she, you know, I trusted the state, and then when they she found out they were going to take him, me and my brother, <laughs> well, here, here's how the cops are, you know, we're in front of the house, you know, and they said, what time does your mom get home? It's 5.30. I say, she gets home at 6. He immediately assumes 6 in the morning. They start taking pictures of the place. I should also mention that uh, my dad long dead and uh, the troubles uh, we were having financially, uh, all my dad's uh, earnings were pocketed from Warner Brothers by, I won't say who, but they know whom. So I grew up poverty, and I didn't make a damn cent. I didn't get anything. And so the house was in disrepair. The neighborhood pretty much thought we were kind of like, you know, 
freakazoid family. Uh, the rumor around all the kids at the school is that we killed and tortured cats or, you know, there was bizarre, weird things going on. I don't even imagine what they meant because back then I didn't understand any of it. I Like, you, you can see me. I'm right here. <laughs> so when my dad died and... Um, the neighborhood got bad. It um, was uh, a lot to overcome. And I like to brag a little bit, and I don't think it sounds too arrogant. But I got through that, and I don't have drug problems. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I've never had a tattoo or a piercing. And I've been in rock bands all my life, by the way. I was fired for one for not drinking. They had an image to downhold. I... I can't do that. I it just it look, I can't complain about somebody else stealing if I steal. I can't complain about somebody else lying if I lie. So if I'm gonna, you know, be upset about things that people are doing wrong, I can't be doing the same things. It just sticks in my craw. I can't ignore it. I can't just rationalize it away. A lot of people can rationalize away their behavior. They feel like they deserved it because this other person is such and such, or something has happened to them that puts them above some sort of line of to cross. And horrible injustices have been done by people who then go to bed thinking that they're the good guys. I can't do that. And it's probably hurt my career more than it should, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to change now. The joke my dad told me This man had this very special cat. This cat they'd like could read each other's thoughts. And this was a purebred and he took extra care of it. He kept it well brushed. This poor cat had a wonderful home regulated temperatures, only the best foods. It had to have attention so many times a day. It had to have things just right. This guy loved his cat, and he took so good a care of it. He he was just, it was his best friend. I mean, you know, there are people like that, okay? He has to go overseas to Europe for a couple of weeks. In fact, it was almost a month he was there. It was It was hard for him. He had to leave his cat with somebody and he couldn't trust anybody he ended up having his brother come and move in to take care of his cat he had a huge list of things to do with the cat the the types of foods when to brush you know how to do it how to clean it you know what to do with the water what temperatures and then he left hoping you know everything would be okay and the first um the first week was so busy he hadn't had a chance to call home in fact it was almost a week and a half he finally got a chance, and he called home, and he said to his brother, he said, Hi, I'm uh, glad I finally, I, it's been really busy. I hadn't had a chance to talk to you. Uh, just, you know, before anything else, just tell me, how's my cat? And his brother, with a sad heart, said, Your cat died. And the man was stunned. He was stressed. He had not been sleeping much and he'd just been doing so much and so much work and then his brother just says your cat died and he just lost it he's like what oh i you my 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 cat died you just you my god oh 
I'm having a heart attack. Don't do that to me. And his brother's like, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I, I don't know what else to do. I thought you just want me to be straight up. Yeah, yeah, but you don't just go. Your cat died. You don't just go. Your cat died. You, you, you could have killed me here. Oh, my God. Dude, I'm sorry. Do you? What do you want me to do? You could have you you, you could have let me down. You could have told me a story. You could have said something like your cat. My cat got out and he was on the roof. Uh, you were trying to coax him down. He rolled off. He got hurt. I don't know. Just just you lead up to something. You don't just go. Your cat died. Oh, I'm sorry. I I felt it was best to tell you. Oh, you know you're you're right. You're right. You know I'm just really stressed. You you did everything right. I'm sorry. <laughs> It was just it was just too much to take. Oh man. Anyway, uh well how's mom? Well, she got out and she's up on the roof. 